0: Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. And on this week's show, Jasmine is going to be joined by Danielle Hanosh, who is the executive director of Blackberry Creek Sanctuary in California. And she is also one of the founders of the LEAP program, which is this amazing new program for kids who want to learn more about farmed animals and they want to develop their leadership skills. And they would prefer that nobody had to die in order for them to do those things. Think about that. Yeah,
1: that's put very delicately as always, Marianne. (laughs) Uh, But we do discuss the LEAP program in depth and it's very inspiring. And I got a lot out of this conversation with Danielle and I know you will too. On this week's Flock bonus segment, I will be continuing my conversation with Danielle. So if you are a Flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up. Or you can find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate.
0: Also, if you are a flock member, please join us for our flock First Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month. So one's coming up soon at 4 p.m. Eastern. And we have so many inspiring guests and a lot of really great conversations about activism, about animals, about life, about this, about that. So, if you're a member of the flock, check out the flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And if you want, you can set up one-to-one conversations with Jasmine.
1: Yeah, do it. That'll be fun. So before we get to our interview today, I wanted to share that I went to Seneca Falls, New York, this past weekend. And I went to the Women's Rights National Historical Museum. It's totally free because it's a a national park. And it was just so inspiring. And Seneca Falls itself is kind of sad, but it's also interesting, by the way, if there's any fans of It's a Wonderful Life out there, the It's a Wonderful Life bridge is there in Seneca Falls. But more on brand is the Women's Rights National Historical Museum. And so I just wanted to Say, if anyone has any plans this summer to go to Farm Sanctuary in Watkins Glen, do yourself a a favor and do a side trip to the Women's Rights National Historical Museum because it is a place where you can learn about the incredible suffragettes who really changed the world, including Susan B. Anthony, who is buried in the cemetery that's right outside of my house, as is Frederick Douglass. I've spoken about that before. And I think I mentioned last week, I have this new tattoo that says failure is impossible. And she said that. So it was kind of cool to to see that, like all of the other incredible humans who worked at the same time in order to give women the right to vote.
0: I am all for people taking a vacation in the Finger Lakes this summer. I think it's a great place to vacation. You now, as we, as we try to move away from flying, or some of us do, thinking of, of great places to vacation that you can reach by car, hopefully an electric car. All right, I'm I'm on my, <laughs> my energy saving mode today. But the finger lakes are great, and just because Seneca Falls is a little bit the land that time forgot, they're beautiful, beautiful towns. So there's uh, well, many people are familiar with Watkins Glen, which which is kind of you know a little bit. Uh, it, it's a funny town, but it has Farm Sanctuary, so that's a huge, huge plus. Mm-hmm. And there's Skinny Atlas, which is so much fun to say. And Canandaigua, which is just booming and so uh, lots and lots of places to uh, to vacation. Yeah. Uh, are you looking forward to to your summer uh, and and to vacationing? I, I know you've been uh, you've been working so hard of late with all of your 12 15, 32 jobs and and, and your writing. You recently wrote a great sub stack.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, I do have my Substack for those of you who are interested. You can sign up for free. You can also choose to pay. Either one is fine. It's jasminesinger.substack.com. And interesting, you should bring that up because my last Substack at the time we're recording this was about the meaning of the Failure is Impossible tattoo that I recently got. To me, there are some meanings that resonate in terms of the personal growth that I've been doing my best to do as well as a second meaning relating for me specifically to my animal activism. Actually, maybe our listeners will be interested. So I have just pulled it up because it is difficult for me to articulate this. So I'm better at articulating things in writing. So this is a, a part of that newsletter. Failure is impossible to me has two very different meanings, which is what this piece is about. So just from the middle of it, Failure is impossible, as in, we must fight for what is just, no matter what is thrown at us. We must be firm in our resolve. We must keep going. This, I believe, is what Susan B. Anthony probably meant when she delivered these words. In the context of her speech, and given the fact that her life's work had not been realized, we mustn't give up feels a bit apt, and a powerful way of passing the torch to the activists who followed. As an animal activist who exists in a world where although veganism is more and more the norm, animals are still horrifically exploited and that is considered completely normal and fine. I get it. I pretty much can't explain to you how hard I and other animal activists have to work to compartmentalize how we feel. Otherwise we probably die of despair because animal oppression is literally everywhere. So we create coping mechanisms, mental separations between ideology and strategy. And then if we're lucky, we find and foster safe spaces with others who get it. That doesn't mean we think we're better than other people, but it does mean that even though there are tremendous joys that come with being vegan, There's also a lot of emotional labor required sometimes in that we have to witness the end results of animal cruelty everywhere we look, from restaurant menus, to certain clothing at stores, to breeding animals used for sports, to animal testing for cosmetics, the list goes on. It is a tall ask for us to embrace this mindset that failure is impossible, but it's true, it has to be. Either that or the animals will continue to unnecessarily be harmed and killed for the pleasure and profit of humans, even though there are other ways. And the disenfranchised workers, mostly immigrants and people of color, will also continue to be exploited as they do the dirty work of killing individuals so that we don't have to. And that's really hard to think about, so I try not to. (laughs) The thing that gets me through is that failure is impossible. That gives me focus, strength, courage, community, and purpose. So anyway, the article goes on to talk about a different take on failure is impossible having to do with how when we're working on like personal growth, we don't have to look at w- our successes as just those kind of big bullet points that we might look at in in you know, in generalities, but really even the efforts that we make can be seen as successes. Failure is impossible because success is in everything that we're doing. So I try and find the balance between these two things. And thank you for humoring me and letting me read that. But I wanted to contextualize why failure is impossible, something that Susan B. Anthony said relating to suffragettes, the suffrage movement, is relating to me to animal activism.
0: The way I think about it is is sort of uh, that it's not a statement of fact because obviously failure is possible. But it it's a statement of commitment. It's just like I'm going to keep going until I'm successful. Like it's, it's just not gonna happen. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh so you know, speaking of relentless activists, <laughs> speaking of people who are quite prolific, I wanted to bring attention to this Miyoko Shinner caption um that she recently posted on her link or her, her LinkedIn and her Instagram. I love we all love Miyoko. Who doesn't love Miyoko? She is single-handedly revolutionized veganism and she says i'm sorry if i disappoint but my company is not food tech we are not alt protein we make food simply put we are the natural evolution of cheese making from animal milk to plant milk i am not interested in the myth of technology married with food the truth is that chefs have understood that relationship for years All food is rooted in science, but not science alone. The best foods bring with them artistry, craft, beauty, the human spirit that strives to bring people together around the table to celebrate, to share their hardships and woes, to share what it means to be human. It is not the technology or the product that is going to save this planet or mankind, but the spirit with which we create what we create and how we can envision a future food system that will bridge humanity save the ecosystem, and truly transform how we view the other creatures with whom we share this planet, either as food and commodities or otherwise disposable objects whose living quarters, forests, oceans, ecosystems, can be destroyed so that we can gain, or as residents of Mother Earth, as precious and valuable as we see ourselves. I don't want to perpetuate the myth that protein is the almighty nutrient. It's not. I don't want to perpetuate the myth that it is technology that will save the day. It's not. The fact is simple. We humans must evolve. We must do the hard work to become better versions of ourselves. I make food, perhaps new forms, but still from what grows from the ground. I want to bring people around the table to further our cause of bringing more people around the table.
0: I love her so much. Yeah, no, she's she's the best. And I, it's really true. Like we have, like food tech is great, you know. It's but ultimately, what we're talking about is food, not tech. Uh, and that's what we're serving to each other, and that's what we're enjoying when we sit down to eat, and that's what we should be calling it. Sometimes we get so caught up in the, in the, I don't know, all the science about it that we forget it's it's real meaning. And you know, its meaning is both personal and deliciousness and and saving the world. She's the best.
1: You know, I realize that you asked me a question before that I didn't answer because I got sidetracked with the failure is impossible thing. But you asked me about whether I'm looking forward to the summer. And I just want to say I am. And in fact, there are, it's wedding season and I'm going to two weddings and they're both vegan and they're both queer. I'm so excited. I get to go to like the kind of weddings that I'm excited to go to and I'm even traveling for one of them. And I'm going to LA at some point, even though I'm scared of COVID. So speaking of Instagram and food, Miyoko, I I plan on partaking in lots of not necessarily tech food or protein food, but just food. (laughs) Because at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to do is get people to eat Food <laughs> just good food that's all it is, really. It is funny how we have to contextualize everything and talk about it as if it's like science and that kind of creeps people out. It's just food that's all we're talking about, and I plan on partaking in it all summer long
0: yeah, no food is food is one of the happy places in life, isn't it, especially when it's not made up of dead animals. yeah, I'm looking forward to the summer too. It's been a while up here in Rochester it's a long winter and all of a sudden it's getting warm and I hope it's it's beautiful where you are and I hope we all get through this summer without too many climate disasters happening and I can't seem to get off the dark side.
1: <laughs> right. You are It is like 80 degrees today as we're recording this. So I think that like, you know, we're pretty much there or at least right now we are. And next weekend is when the Lilac Festival starts in Rochester. So that's like the whole month of May and it's right outside of my house. So I'm very excited about just taking in the outside and the and the, the beautiful blooms and all of that. It's a good exercise in staying in the moment, which I'm trying and generally failing, but still trying to do. And since failure is impossible, I'm succeeding. You have recently succeeded at putting together an incredible Animal Law podcast episode. So I was hoping that you would talk about it a little bit so that our listeners for our hen house can learn what they have missed if they haven't yet tuned in to the latest episode.
0: Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's a great episode. It may be part of what's getting me down <laughs> if something is, because it is about food in a horrible, dreadful kind of way. My guests were Kelsey Elberly, who used to be with ALDF, and she's been on the podcast before, but now she is with the Harvard Law and Animal Policy Program. and And also Dina Jones, who's with Animal Welfare Institute, and they're talking about this this uh, case, Animal Welfare Institute versus Vilsack, and it's about chicken slaughter. So it's pretty distressing. And as we all know, chickens are not covered by the Humane Slaughter Act. So you would think that there are no laws that refer to the welfare of the chickens as they're being slaughtered, and that is one point of view. But there are other points of view, too. And they talk about the Poultry Products Inspection Act and whether it can, you know, be used in some ways to somewhat diminish the unbelievable suffering that goes on during chicken slaughter. And so it's a tough subject, but it's a fascinating interview and a really, really great case. And I think this case has legs. So you probably want to give a listen if that's this kind of thing, if chicken slaughter is the kind of thing you want to, you're interested in, which, you know, that's what we're all interested in.
1: Well, I'm sorry that you're struggling, but despite the struggle, you do manage to put a lot of focus on how we can create new ways of being. And so, everyone always loves the Animal Law Podcast. Me at the top of that list and the and the front of that line. So, I I I love this interview, and I appreciate the fact that you continue to. Produce the Animal Law Podcast in a way that is also accessible to non-lawyers like myself. So ha- hands up if you're a non-lawyer and you want to hear this. By the way, before we go, there has been like some coverage uh, that I feel like has been on the positive side. For, so since you're feeling down, maybe this will cheer you up. I know you saw it already, but on the site housebeautiful.com, they are one of the many sites that put together a list of how to be more eco, be more green for Earth Day, which recently passed. And did you happen to notice there were several numbers in there that pointed to being vegan?
0: Yes, I did. Yeah, no, I was the one who was reading this. And uh, here I am reading along. And I noticed that it took 11 Tips to get there, but number twelve is stock your kitchen with healthy plant-based foods. And I thought, oh, that's cool. And then I noticed that the person that they are citing is the wonderful Anita Kranj, who is the global campaign coordinator for Plant Based Treaty, and of course is is well known to us as well from her uh, work in the Save movement. As she points out, adopting a plant-based diet is by far the greatest action you can take to lower your carbon footprint. The next tip is switch to dairy alternatives. Love that they managed to get dairy in there as well. Eliminating dairy in favor of plant-based milks will prevent more methane from accumulating in the atmosphere. Nice work, Anita. The next suggestion, all right, they could have done a little better than this. I'm sure this wasn't her suggestion. It's not a, a bad suggestion. It's just a little too weak. Start with Meatless Monday to eliminate meat and fish. Yeah, you can do a little bit more than that, folks. But still, I was excited to see it in there and I was excited to see a passionate animal advocate yeah. being the person being quoted.
1: And on the subject of passionate animal advocate, of course, Vox is this incredibly animal rights friendly publication and Kenny Torella had an incredible piece.
0: It's fairly friendly in general, but it's particularly friendly because of Kenny Torella's um, column, right. and he does do a terrific column. Yeah, I'm not sure it's as generally friendly as it used to be when Ezra Klein was heading it up, but yeah, no, great article if you're interested. The difference you make when you eat less meat, uh, this is about climate, and, and it's a, just a great, short, concise, really great article to be able to cite when people, you know, are shocked shocked i tell you to hear that eating animals has anything to do with the climate
1: (laughs) i wasn't altogether totally depressed by the coverage on earth day but i was trying really hard to like glass half It i have to admit so i'm glad for some of these little bright lights in the midst of a very dark place and one of those bright lights is our guest today so i think without further ado we should get to her because you're going to love this interview
0: Yeah, you absolutely are. The buzz around our hen house has been strong for this interview, I have to say. Danielle Hanosh is the co-founder and executive director of Blackberry Creek Farm Animal Sanctuary in Colfax, California, which she founded with her husband, Joshua Hanosh, in 2014. She leads Blackberry Creek's rescue, education, and advocacy programs, event planning, fundraising, and community partnerships. Their 10 years of classroom experience with teenagers inspired them to envision a humane education program, which has now blossomed into the leaders for ethics, animals, and the planet. That's LEAP. Danielle is also the author of several children's books, including The Other Side, which touches on the experience of loving and losing a beloved animal. And she will be joining Jasmine right after this. This episode of Our Hen
1: House is brought to you in part by Meow Meow Tweet. Meow Meow Tweet creates vegan personal care for everybody. Their products are always ethical, low waste, handmade, and cruelty-free. As the first brand to introduce 100% backyard compostable deodorant sticks and lip balms, their skincare, body care, and deodorants are designed to minimize plastic consumption, and they're offered at an accessible price point. Meow Meow Tweet takes a slow food approach to skincare. All formulations are artfully blended by a certified aromatherapist and herbalist. Ingredients are certified organic, they're non-GMO, and they're from strong or renewable plant populations. And they also avoid materials that harm the ecosystems of animals and people, which is what we're all about at our hen house. Products are made in small batches by hand in their California microfactory. Meow Meow Tweet is also a certified B Corp, plastic negative, and a climate neutral company. How much do we love this? Meow Meow Tweet redistributes funds to causes in the categories of social justice, animal justice, and nature. Our Hen House listeners can get 20% off at meowmeowtweet.com by using the code henhouse. Again, you get 20% off at meowmeowtweet.com by using the code HENHOUSE. Welcome to our HENHOUSE, Danielle.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here.
1: Well, I'm excited that you're here. When we first heard about the LEAP program, we knew we needed to find out more. And so that's how we ended up in touch with you. So thank you so much for all you're doing. Let's start out telling folks what the LEAP program stands for and who the program is for.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So LEAP is an acronym that stands for Leaders for Ethics, Animals, and the Planet. And it is offering the high school participants right now, we're focused on high school age, a hands-on experience with farmed and domestic animals and humane education.
1: Wow. Okay. There's a lot to unpack there because I still want to know everything. So let's start. How long does the program last and what kind of work are the participants
2: doing? So right now the pilot program is one semester long, but moving forward as we get into the regular year, it's going to follow a school year. So it will be a whole year long, two semesters. And as far as the hands-on work that the students are doing, they are attending a monthly hands-on workshop at the sanctuary that is closest to them of our three participating sanctuaries right now. And they're doing everything from hands-on animal care. So for example, in March, we focused on chickens and health checks to building projects, to community service, and interacting with the public at tours and volunteer days.
1: Wow, this is like everything that everyone has always told me they want to do at a sanctuary. I love it. (laughs) I'm I'm curious, do they get paid?
2: They do get paid. So we offer a $500 scholarship right now because it's just a semester-long pilot program. But once we hit the 2022-2023 school year, we'll be offering a $1,000 scholarship for each participant who completes the program.
1: Tell us who has been participating so far. Are they already involved in animal rights and or environmentalism, or are they complete newbies, maybe something in between?
2: It's actually been a really good mix, and it's been really interesting to see the variety of kids that we have signing up. So out of our three participating sanctuaries, we have several students who are already vegan and already big into animal rights and volunteering all the way to other high school students who are officers in their local FFA or 4-H. And they are raising animals for animal ag. And they heard about this program and wanted a different perspective on working with farmed animals. And so it's been really fun to see, you know, and there's a few kids in the middle as well. um, But really fun to see the different groups of students who are interested.
1: Yeah, 4-H definitely gives us a knee-jerk reaction. I'm sure it does for you too. So let's dig into that a little bit more. How does this compare to 4-H? I mean, obviously they don't have to send the animal to slaughter at the end, but what is like the full picture of difference between LEAP and 4-H?
2: We do tend to have that knee-jerk reaction. And we've worked with some 4-H students in the past And I think that there's a lot of good qualities about those programs that we as animal advocates tend to overlook, like the leadership training that they get, the public speaking training, and really the animal care. A lot of 4-H students are trained to take good care of the animals while they're in their care. They just then, of course, send them away to slaughter at the end. And so that is the most major difference, is not only how we... Try to show the students that there's another way, you know, there's another system besides the traditional animal agriculture system as far as a way to interact with farmed animals and to care for them. But just giving them that opportunity to see the connection between things like animal agriculture and climate change. And the other problems that arise from that has been one of the major differences. And just letting them make their own conclusions about that after working in a sanctuary setting.
1: And correct me if I'm wrong, but this whole idea came about originally because of a student who didn't want to slaughter the animal they had raised, didn't it? Can you tell us about that story and like how one thing led to another?
2: Sure. So we... Here at the sanctuary that I run, Blackberry Creek, we had a student write us a letter a few years ago. Um, It was back in, let me think, 2017 in the spring. Her name was Adori, and Adori was a freshman in high school down in Orange County down near L.A. and was put in a FFA class at her high school as an elective she didn't choose it she kind of ended up in it but she got excited when she found out they got to work with animals and she was getting a pig and she was thrilled about it and she really had no idea about the end of the program and what would happen and as she progressed through the class for the it was a whole school year she began to realize what she was in for and she had really bonded with her pig sebastian and so she had reached out to a variety of sanctuaries and that's when we got her letter and she wanted to somehow save sebastian from slaughter the problem was that because she was in a school run ffa class the school technically owned sebastian so different 4-h and ffa programs work differently in that regard but she had to raise the money to actually buy him from the school oh wow you know we don't buy animals obviously here as a sanctuary for for various reasons but we did guide her in how to set up a GoFundMe page. And we did help her with like who to send it to and how to advertise. And she raised the money to save Sebastian in 24 hours. So it was was amazing. It was, (laughs) she told a very compelling story. So we offered to do the transport and to come down and, and she actually wanted to take him to fair because she had worked to train him so hard, which was something that we later learned you know, was actually fairly dangerous because if he would have won, he would have become property of the fair, uh, which none of us knew at the time. Luckily, he did not win. <laughs> so we drove down to Orange County. We got to spend some time with Adori and her mom, Shalice, and they actually came and visited Sebastian that next summer, and they're going to come again this summer. And that's that's the original animal who inspired the program.
1: Wow. That is so cool. I love the community component of that, just like supporting her with the GoFundMe and everything. I think that's really inspiring to people who are probably listening to this and maybe want to lend their skills to some campaign or something. There is a place for everyone. And that is a really beautiful ending. I'm glad that, that he lost. I'm glad he's a loser. Oh, man.
2: Me too. Yeah. My husband actually made a short documentary film about it that's on YouTube, if anybody's interested in seeing Adori and Sebastian. It's called Adori's Courage, and it's a short, like, 15-minute film about that whole story and what happened and some interviews with some other FFA students we met there who wish they had known about that other option.
1: Okay. We'll link to it in the show notes for this episode, too, because I definitely want to see that. So this program is not just hands-on animal care. There is also a strong educational component. Can you tell us about that?
2: So I was a former classroom educator. I taught middle school for 10 years, and I really knew that we needed to have a solid curriculum going forward. I mean, the hands-on animal care part is great, but it can't be the only part of the program. And so we have been working with a variety of different existing curriculums and creating our own. There's myself and another educator who are part of the founding committee of of LEAP leaders. And so right now the kids are coming to a once a month evening virtual class. Since we only have three sanctuaries, we're actually able to all get on there live right now, which is really fun. So the kids can meet each other from different parts of California And we are talking about things like the emotional intelligence of farmed animals, we're talking about climate change, we're talking about animal agriculture in all of its forms, the human rights aspects that go along with that. So there's a lot to cover and we're just starting to dip our toes in getting that whole curriculum ready. Right now we have our semesters worth and we're continuing to develop it for the year. That's so
1: cool. I also saw that one of the goals of the program is to culminate in a community based program. What are your ideas for that?
2: So, we have a few different ideas for that. And I think it's going to largely depend on each sanctuary and what their needs are in their community. Some of the things that the kids have expressed interest in doing are starting things like community gardens because a lot of students who participate in traditional animal agriculture programs, they really love the idea of feeding the world and helping to end hunger. And we think that this is a great way for them to learn about the ways that promoting plant-based eating actually creates less food scarcity and for for the world in general, and on a local level, creating community gardens, and food pantry programs that can help families that need assistance. So that's something that we've been talking a lot about. That's just one of the examples.
1: Wow. Okay, that's super cool. I love the hands-on. And I see that you have tried to design this to hit a lot of personal development outcomes for these students. Can you tell us what they get out of it that will help them in life in addition to a part-time job?
2: So... The leadership component is really big for us and that's actually why it's in the title. You know, we have leaders as the L in LEAP and we want these students, not all of them will be interested so much in the animal rights component. Some of them might be and some of them might be interested in the veterinary component and they like the animal care and they want to participate in ways to make veterinary medicine more accessible to these traditionally farmed animals. Some of them will want to go more into climate change and figuring out solutions for that as they move forward. A lot of the generation that's in high school right now is very much focused on climate solutions and sustainable farming, which in this case, you know, needs to move away from animal agriculture in in general as a whole. And so we're really trying to equip them with the knowledge to make their own decisions about those things by just giving them all the factual information, giving them the experience of learning the animals or individuals, and hopefully developing in them not just that leadership, but the sort of moral agency to make their own choices when it comes to those things as adults. And besides leadership, we're also looking to instill in them a sense of responsibility Obviously, like caring for animals is is a big responsibility, as we know, just with kids getting a pet at home. And I think that that transfers over into responsibility as a whole for society, for the natural world, and for wild animals as well, and habitat preservation, all the things that connect to that. So we're looking big into leadership, to responsibility, and I think really towards creating kids who become adults who have, we want them to be thoughtful and we want them to be very deliberate about their choices. We don't want them to see these societal constructs as the only way and the only norm. We want them to question the societal constructs that we are all told are, you know, normal and right. And we want them to come up with those conclusions for themselves. So getting them to think differently.
1: I'm very curious about your own journey here, that you came from a background in education and in teaching, and now you're plugging your skills into this, your other passion. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Is this ever a direction you thought you would go in?
2: <laughs> Not when I started teaching. I think I was an omnivore you know, growing up, and I ate animals up until my late 20s. I'm 36 right now. And I think... There's so much to say about that. So when I was, I was a student at UC Davis and I was handed a pamphlet about the egg industry uh, when I was in college and I thought, oh, this is baloney. This is a bunch of propaganda. And I did some research because that's who I am and I want to make sure I know all the facts. And I did a deep dive and found I knew absolutely nothing about where my food came from. And so I started educating myself then. And as I went through my 20s and learned more and more, I became vegetarian and then eventually vegan. I was already teaching, you know, for quite a few years at that time. I think I was in my fourth or fifth year of teaching when I went vegan. I had volunteered at Leilani Farm Sanctuary in Maui on vacation with my husband. And Laura Lee, the founder there, was extremely helpful. And she does a lot with students and a lot with education And a light bulb kind of went off for me that, well, I have a lot of students who come from abusive homes or, you know, deal with neglect and deal with just different physical and emotional trauma. And these animals that she was rescuing, almost all came from situations like that as well. And I thought, what a neat thing it would be if I could somehow start a sanctuary where we live in California to pair these students with these animals and start a whole new kind of, I don't want to say therapy program, but just a different experience for them to be able to maybe relate to another being when they have a hard time relating or opening up to humans.
1: That's so cool. I, you know, so many of us look back at our childhoods and just, we have like that animal. In my case, it was a cat. And I'm not even sure I realized until I was an adult the importance that that cat played in my future animal activism and just being able to connect with him. And for you to be able to be offering this, like, times a billion, (laughs) given your sanctuary work to children, I'm given such hope for how that can help kids sort of develop their compassion and develop uh, their worldview earlier than you and I did. Because I know everyone listening to this except for maybe like the 0.0001% of people who are raised vegan who are listening to this, to have that feeling like, uh, why did it take me so long? So I just, you know, kids are growing up in a different time and age now, thankfully, where it is available to them, where, you know, it's not just a pamphlet being handed to them like it was for us, which thank goodness that we were handed those pamphlets, but now there's billboards and there's sanctuaries and there's the internet and all, well, you grew up in the internet age. I, I didn't, but when I went vegan, it was the very beginning of the internet. So it was like, you know, PETA and that was kind of it. That was all you had access to. And now there's so many other avenues where people can find and foster their compassion. So back to the LEAP program. I know it is the early days, but tell us how it is going so far.
2: It's going really well so far. I think that we've all been pleasantly surprised with how much the kids are just jumping feet first into it. We weren't sure, you know, the the aspect of the hands-on animal care can be hard for some students who have never grown up around animals because it's dirty and it's smelly and they're out shoveling poop and doing health checks and things that aren't always glamorous. But They have been doing a really great job with showing up. They've been very responsible and and coming. They do some volunteer hours with us during the month as well. So it's been a really neat opportunity to see them try some things that are a little uncomfortable for them and get some new experiences. One thing I've also really enjoyed seeing is our veterinarian working with them. So we've invited the students out a few times not necessarily on their day when they're doing their hands-on workshop, but if we are having our large animal vet come out, she comes to us, of course, to do a procedure, it's been great to have the kids come out and watch because, I mean, it's a hands-on learning experience for them. She talks about what she's doing as she's doing it, and they've gotten to see some really neat things so far. Not all of them want to become veterinarians, but for those of them that do, it's it's a really neat experience for them.
1: I heard from other sanctuaries that the work with the veterinarians is interesting because a lot of the veterinarians are not used to pigs being teenagers or old, and that they've actually learned a lot from sanctuary people. Can you speak to that a little bit? I'm definitely in the dark here because this is not my world at all, but I'm very interested in like how your sort of ordinary veterinarian reacts when connecting with a sanctuary that is uh, allowing these animals to live out their full lives.
2: Absolutely. That's something that we have been both pleasantly and unpleasantly surprised with at times is just the different mindsets of the veterinarians and their backgrounds. We are super lucky to have had two, one, one animal, large animal veterinarian become one of our closest friends and another one who just came on board this last year. And, They're both extremely open to working with sanctuaries and just very open-minded about what they will do for these animals and learning, because like you said, they don't have a lot of experience, for example, with pigs, working on pigs who are older than six months old in general, but when they're slaughtered for breeding sows, you know, it's a few years. We have had not the best experiences with some of our hospitals around the area, and that has been a point of learning for us a a growth area that we are trying to really advocate and push for a different mindset when it comes to treating sanctuary animals, because some of the university hospitals around have a very different definition of animal welfare and quality of life than sanctuaries do because they are trained and educated to get the animals they work with healthy enough to go back to the farm to go to slaughter. And thinking about them living with conditions like arthritis, which big pigs get you know, when they grow to seven, 800 pounds, it's very unexplored in, in the world of medicine. They don't really have a lot of information because they really haven't been seeing those types of patients for a long time. And so we have been working on some cases, in fact, one with our pig Cromwell, who we've actually taken to Indiana. He's at Purdue University right now because they are very open to learning and treating sanctuary animals uh, with the same level of care and respect as dogs and cats. So that's a lot of information, but I think that the kids are getting, in the LEAP program, they're getting a really well-rounded experience with that because we have some great large animal veterinarians who come to us. But then if the animals need to go to the hospital, it's a bit of a different story.
1: Well, I know that farmed animals can be intimidating for folks who aren't used to them. Do the students have any trouble adjusting to the challenges they can pose?
2: You know, they haven't so far in my experience. At our sanctuary, we actually ran a program before LEAP that was sort of the impetus for LEAP to get started. And it was just at Blackberry Creek. And I've had about 15 students go through that program. I'll tell you that the pigs are the most intimidating to most of the students just because of their size. They're very large. So we have eight farm pigs who are all between about five and 800 pounds. We do safety training. You know, we talk about the inherent dangers of working with large animals in general. But I think the kids are very pleasantly surprised once they get to know the pigs that a simple belly rub turns them into, you know, a giant dog per se. So it's been really fun to see them. Um, I think for the most part, teenagers are very open to new experiences, even more so than adults. And that's been an exciting thing to watch is them interacting with new animals.
1: Oh, I bet. I bet. I'm very curious what their dinner conversations are like that that evening. You must have a (laughs) lot of parents who are like, oh God, (laughs) I love it. Uh, (laughs) Where do these students come from and what qualifications are you looking for?
2: So we are really open. As far as what qualifications we're looking for, we basically are drawing from, like I said before, a very broad group of students. So they don't have to be vegan, they don't even have to be vegetarian. In fact, we really like working with kids that have never maybe thought about animals in a different way. So, we are really looking for kids who want to like I said before, jump in, you know, feet first and get the practical hands-on skills. They don't really need to come with any skills. We want them to understand that as the next generation of leaders, they have a responsibility to make a difference in their communities. And so we want them to be interested and engaged in the program in whatever aspect they find the most fascinating and the most interesting to them, whether that's the animal care, the humane education, the climate change solutions, etc., the students that are joining, we hope that they love being outdoors because we're outside a lot and that they're happy with the both the virtual classroom education and the physical hands-on learning. We want them to get involved, to become part of our sanctuary communities, to connect with those animals. And then, of course, you know, they have to have some practical qualifications. They need to be available as far as when our programs are running. They do have some options when to attend their volunteer hours and things. They need to have reliable transportation. Some of the kids can't drive yet. And so it is imperative that the parents commit to bringing them out to the sanctuary a couple of times a month. And for right now, they have to live in Northern California just because that's where the participating sanctuaries are. But we hope to expand that soon.
1: Are you hoping that this is a model that will spread to other sanctuaries? Is that what I'm picking up?
2: Yeah, absolutely. We actually have been having some discussions about that and some meetings. We are going to be forming Leap into its own nonprofit because that way it will, yeah, it will have the potential to reach many more students and inadvertently many more parents. You know, you mentioned the dinner time conversation and Two of the students that I have actually were former students of mine when they were in seventh grade, and that's how they came to learn about the program. It's also a lot of word of mouth, and we advertise at local schools and in local fairs, you know, where the kids are doing FFA and 4 H. But these two girls are twins, uh, Leah and Kendall, and they actually went vegan after seeing a couple of documentaries a few years ago. And their parents are not vegan, but they're very open to it. And the girls have decided to start cooking dinner every night because they know if they cook dinner, their parents will eat it. And I so love they- <laughs> That is <laughs> so cool. It's really cool. So we're seeing changes, you know, all the way up into the family and, and sparking some really good conversations.
1: So, you've talked a bit about Blackberry Creek Farm Sanctuary, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about it. So, can you just tell us where you are and who lives there?
2: So, we are in Northern California. We're about halfway between Sacramento and Tahoe, if people are familiar with that area. We're in a tiny little railroad town called Colfax. And we have right now about 85 rescued animals on our property. We are lucky enough to be able to use our board member's property as well here. just She's about 20 minutes away to graze our large animals. So we have cows and they get to go to what we call cow camp every year. So they go over (laughs) to our board member's house and have about 20 acres of grass to graze for a few months over there. Besides the cows, we do have llamas. We have the big pigs. We don't have any pot bellies, but we've got the big guys. We have chickens turkeys sheep goats ducks geese a guinea fowl two dogs two cats and two mini donkeys and a tortoise and I think that that's all
1: wow Ugh, what a beautiful family I love it so much <laughs> I'm so much more interested in that than people who are like oh I have 13 grandchildren two <laughs> four. I'm like yeah okay okay tell me about your animals yes so you mentioned climate change a few times. How has climate change affected your operations, especially being located where you are? And what are your plans for the future to deal with the ongoing challenges?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question, especially well-timed because um, we do live in the forest. We live in the foothills. And I know that the other two sanctuaries that are involved with LEAP, which is Rancho Compassion and Jamison Humane, they also live down in foothills, but closer to the coast. But we are all in high fire danger. We actually have encountered a couple of different climate related problems at the sanctuary. One has been the drought, obviously. We are on, luckily, we are on a very high producing well for the moment. So all of our water for the animals comes from our well. We also have a creek that runs through the property. But starting last year, they actually closed off the outlet to the creek for about five months during the, the hottest part of the year to conserve that water and send it down the valley for agricultural reasons. So we lost quite a bit of our water, which has been difficult for our animals. Obviously, the pigs and you know animals like them that rely on the water to make mud in the summer have had a hard time and we've had to figure out some solutions. Our fire insurance has gone through the roof. It has more than tripled since we moved here eight years ago. So that's, it's starting to become unaffordable, which I know for a lot of, even just families that don't have land for a lot of just regular homes in the foothills, that's been an issue for us. You know, we have the responsibility to care for this many animals to make sure they have a safe home. And so the biggest and and scariest thing is we did actually have a fire very close to us last year. We had one start at the Bear River Campground, which is just about two miles away from us. And we evacuated with a huge amount of help from our volunteers and some other sanctuaries locally. We have a great community, a network of sanctuaries in Northern California that come together during emergencies like that. But we had to evacuate over 80 animals in like three hours. And the fire got to a half a mile from our house. One of our volunteers just down the street lost her home. We are incredibly lucky that we did not. But just the logistics of roads being closed, trying to get you know our emergency, we have an emergency plan, we have people with trucks and trailers, but they couldn't even get into the town because the road was shut down so quickly by authorities. So we have seriously thought about the future of the sanctuary, if we're even going to be able to stay here long term with climate change, just because of the safety for the animals. And then after that, obviously the affordability.
1: Yeah. Wow. I can't even imagine what that must have been like. I mean, my like frame of reference is that my wife and I were living in West Hollywood at the beginning of covid and there were the fires going on, but then my neighborhood was like the kind of height of those riots. And so we had packed a getaway car. We have three dogs, one cat. We were like, what are we, how are we going to get these animals out if we have to leave? Cause we had a getaway car packed. It was very intense at that moment, as you, I'm sure, remember. And anyway, I just like thinking we had four animals. They're all tiny and you're dealing with 80. So, Wow. That's so much to deal with. And I don't think it's what people think of when they sort of have that instinct of like, I'm going to start a sanctuary. Yeah. You know, I think they <laughs> see it as this like beautiful, like rolling hills and like brushing the animal. I don't know, but that's the this fun is part. Real.
2: very small part, but yes, enjoyable, but not, not the big picture. Yeah. We, we were lucky to have so much help and incredibly lucky that the fire kind of eventually went up the canyon the other way from us. But you are correct. It is it is very scary. So you
1: mentioned animal agriculture. I, and I know that you... So you, it seems like you are in an area with a lot of animal agriculture. So can you speak about that? Like, what are your relations like with the local community?
2: So we are in Colfax. We are a little bit further removed from for example, the dairy industry, because they are much more down on the coastal parts of California. But I will say that Rancho Compasión and Jamison Humane are much more in dairy land down there. We see a lot of the veal calves. We see a lot of sort of the homesteading backyard farmer operations up where we live. So, we have a good relationship with the farmers in the community. We haven't had, you know, a lot of confrontation with them or anything like that. But one thing that we've learned and that I think Rancho has a really good handle on is that while we can do all the humane education we want and we can talk about veganism and we can invite the community on tours, you know, this is people's livelihoods. And so, yes, we have to change their minds and offer them new insights into farmed animals as individuals. But we also have to offer them another choice and another solution besides animal farming. And one thing I know that Rancho has done really well is, of course, because Miyoko runs Rancho Compassion with her daughter, Camelia, they have started a program to help local dairy farmers to transition away from dairy and into other crops. And she is very well set up to do that because of course, you know, she runs a nationally acclaimed business and she knows exactly what she's doing with production, with the the whole operation. And I think that programs like that are going to be essential for really bringing the community into bigger change, getting them to not only understand, like I said, the farmed animal aspect, but help them to transition away from animal agriculture and find money making something else. If you're going to make whatever it is that you're going to grow or you're going to produce, it it needs to be able to sustain you. And hopefully we, we give them the tools to be able to do that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I interviewed Miyoko about that for Veg News, actually, if people are interested in hearing a little bit more about that transition. Um, And I am very proud to be on the advisory board for Rancho Compessio, and I'm a big fan of what they're doing and, and, and what you're doing with your sanctuary and also just with the LEAP program as a whole. I feel like it's revolutionary. I'm so excited about everything you're talking about. So switching gears, can you tell us about The Very Ugly Chicken?
2: (laughs) Yes, absolutely. The Very Ugly Chicken is a children's book that I wrote. Uh, Like I said, I have an English degree and my background is in education. And so one way I really wanted to reach young people is through literature because that's a way that I was really inspired as a child and as an adult as well. So The Very Ugly Chicken is a story based on one of our actual sanctuary residents named Judy. And Judy was a cross street 10. So talking about the local farm operations up here and sort of the, some of the problems inherent there, we have some chicken breeders up near us who are all about incubating and hatching their own eggs to get, you know, fancy chickens and chickens of different colors and all the rest. And so they often get disabled babies from some of the experiments with incubation and mixing different genetics. And the crossbeaks are ones that I have a special place in my heart because they have to be hand-fed for their entire lives. Uh, if you could picture a chicken whose whose normal beak, you know, sort of works like a pair of tweezers to pick up seeds and and grain, and then if you uh, you know move those tweezers at an angle where they are almost horizontal or crisscross like an X, they have an awfully difficult time eating. And so that was Judy, and so Judy lived with us for about three years, and we hand fed her every single day. She eventually passed away from some complications with that. But she was really inspiring to a lot of people because she had this disability, this physical disability, but she never let it slow her down. And she was just the funniest, goofiest chicken. She had a crazy personality. We called her Judy Hey Hey. If any of you have seen Moana, um, because <laughs> she <laughs> she often was very silly, but she was great when we would talk to adults and students about seeing animals in a different way and also when we would talk about disabilities. So we did some field trips for kids with disabilities. We did a couple of assemblies, just talking about how being different is not a bad thing. And so the book that we wrote, that I wrote, and my board member, actually, no, my board member illustrated another one. This one was illustrated by a friend, Taylor Gmalling, And it tells the story of Judy sort of saving the day for other animals. And so the message of the story is not only to treat others with respect and kindness and celebrate differences but there's also a vegan message in there because the animals go missing at the farm and Judy is the only one that's always with the little girl who who owns the animals because of course she has to be hand fed all day so she gets to go everywhere so she finds out the animals have gone to fair and are going to be sold and she gets this, this great idea that she's going to be the one to save them because everybody's always making fun of her and she wants to be helpful and, and seen in a better light. And she enters the animals in a dance competition at the fair instead of the animal agriculture competition. And she teaches them all the dance moves and they they win first place and all the animals end up doing these silly dances. So kids really like the illustrations And the girl, the little girl with the prize money, decides to open a sanctuary and save all the animals at the end instead of... Oh, I love it.
1: Oh, that Um, is so cool. (laughs) Oh my God, I'm going to get a copy. That is so fun. I love it so much. So Danielle, thank you so much. If you could please tell our listeners how they can learn more about LEAP, get involved, learn more about the Blackberry Creek Farm Sanctuary, as well as the Very Ugly Chicken. I would appreciate it. Give us the uh, 411.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. So I'm going to start with LEAP. So LEAP has its own website. It is leapforanimals.org. And people can go there to check out the three participating sanctuaries right now. The scholarship program is on there if people want to donate to a scholarship for the students or to the program in general. We're eventually going to, you know, of course, have to hire staff and need some investors to really get this off the ground and make it a nationally recognized program that other sanctuaries can participate in as far as Blackberry Creek goes, we are at blackberrycreek.org. And there are lots of different links on there as far as our programs go. And the books are on there as well. And the books can also be found on Amazon, The Very Ugly Chicken. And I've also written two other books. The One that's probably the most popular is called The Other Side, and it deals with animal grief and loss. In a picture book with a, a nice poem in there, and I think it's been really helpful for a lot of adults as well as children to, as we all know, you know that have animals and that care for animals. The the constant loss, especially at a rescue, who you know we we care for sick and disabled and special needs animals, can be really difficult mentally and emotionally on on the caretakers and our volunteers. And so the other side was written to help people get through those times and and just recognize the special legacy that those animals leave behind and those are all on amazon and our website.
1: Amazing. Thank you so much. I would love it if you'd stick on the line for a little bit so I could chat with you for a flock. Maybe I'll ask you a couple questions about the other side cuz I am intrigued. I want to l- learn more. Absolutely. Thank you. And thank you so much for shedding light on all that you're doing. It's it's all very inspiring and and I'm I'm grateful that I got a chance to meet you. So thanks for spending time with us today on our hen house.
2: Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here and to speak on behalf of the animals.
0: Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our henhouse part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can Follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know. Info at ourhenhouse.org. Anxieties are rising. Two stories today about McDonald's, the first from meatpoultry.com. McDonald's continues defense of animal welfare commitments. This is more fallout from the from the proxy fight that was launched by Carl Icahn, the, uh, the the investor, with McDonald's at his daughter's behest over the company's sourcing of pork, and and referencing their their commitment to getting gestation crates out of their supply chain, which they have completely failed to do. And he's calling on McDonald's to commit to eliminating gestation crates and a bunch of other things. And and in a statement, according to this article, McDonald's defended his commitment to animal welfare and characterized ICON's demands as unfeasible. And I just think this is like one of the reasons to ask for welfare reforms, perhaps the most important reason, is to prove that they can't do them. Uh to publicize the fact that that it's all nonsense that That even these minor reforms, like getting the gestation crate out of their supply chain, they can't pull off. And according to McDonald's, it only sources approximately 1% of U.S. pork production and does not own any sows or produce or package pork. Uh, McDonald's, nobody thought you did, like denying the uh, obvious. And they they say that the definition of crate-free, conjured up by the HSUS, is so obscure that it represents an extremely niche market comprising less than 0.1% of U.S. pork production. This presents a challenge of supply. Well, you know, they could use their own definition of crate-free, which I'm sure would be far more brutal. I don't know. But I bet they still wouldn't want to do it because, you know what, it would cost them more. And then we get to the bottom line. The company added that Icon's demands also are expensive. And, of course, they talk about poor people and how Carl Icon has a majority stake in some other company that supplies packaging for pork and all, all these other uh, obfuscations that don't have anything to do with the fact that, yeah, you lied and you lied because it's impossible. Nobody wants to pay the amount you would have to pay for pork if you actually treated the animals with any kind of decency. All right, our second story is from ConsumerFreedom.com. McDonald's new salesman, PETA. Yes. Um, apparently, I didn't know about this, McDonald's is, is trying out its new McPlant burger, which it has started in Europe, actually in Dallas and San Francisco. Actually, you know not know what I'm saying, and I think I did hear that. And um, it uses, a, according to this article, fake meat patty instead of real beef. And according to this article, PETA has been buying up McPlants and giving them out for free, apparently 10,000 McPlants. What he has to say is Peter is now paying tens of thousands to one of the biggest meat purveyors in the world, all while Peter runs the website mccruelty.com. The irony is certainly delicious. There's just like nothing ironic about that. Like what? I mean, these are not meat burgers. I don't know. The article points out, and quotes somebody, uh, one, a restaurant analyst, that I don't think 10,000 McPlants in a vacuum would be enough to flip a switch. And it probably isn't. You know, uh, I, I don't see any reason to suppose that that's the reason that PETA is doing this. That that they think that this is going to make it more popular. I mean, in and of itself, buying the ten thousand, they're just trying to get it out there so that people will try it and buy it. One franchisee owner in Texas said the McPlant isn't selling as well as other menu items at his locations. Well, yeah, I mean, that doesn't see. I I didn't really expect it to outsell outsell dead animal burgers right away. And then he tells the story about just egg. Which, you know, when when they were starting out, they had people buying up some of the product in grocery stores. And uh, it acts like this was this huge scandal. Well, Just Egg seems to be doing just fine. So maybe it wasn't really such a big deal. All right. Our third story is once again a story about food poisoning from the Legally Speaking column on Meeting Place by Sean Stevens. Loves food, travel, staying in, going out. Boy, this, the, the, I've just never seen so many. Articles as of late about the problem of pathogens in what they like to call meat plants or food plants or whatever it is they're calling slaughterhouses these days. When foodborne illness outbreaks do occur, many consumers likely wonder why the companies involved struggle to simply rid their food processing environments of all pathogens. After all, astronauts were hitting golf balls off the surface of the moon 50 years ago. Well, apparently, going to the moon is a hell of a lot easier than getting bacteria and other pathogens out of slaughterhouses and out of out of the meat, of course, that comes out of them. The answer for now and maybe always is no, they, they can't because pathogens are hard to kill and really, really small. He just lists some of the ways that bacteria can get into these uh, places and where they are hiding in these places that they just can't get them out of. In the case of bacteria, hundreds of thousands of cells can typically fit on the head of a pin. They can easily find their way deep into food processing equipment and machinery infecting internal components. If they find a niche that is beyond the reach of cleaning and sanitation, they can, in a vicious cycle, continue to find their way back out and onto food contact surfaces every time the equipment is subsequently used. You know, that's where meat comes from. Can we eliminate all pathogens from facilities? Perhaps not. And then he just says, "Well, we should do our best, pretty much. So, yeah, uh, well, of course, you know, previous articles in the same column have shown that there's starting to be something of a crackdown on on food poisoning coming out of meat plants, slaughterhouses. So maybe that would account for why anxieties are <laughs> rising quite so high. And that's it for this week's rising anxieties.
1: Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, we invite you to join the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at ourhenhouse. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast. To composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Vicki Bichler for her membership and administrative help. We'd also like to give a shout out to the amazing Veronica Kalinska, who designed our brand new logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for tuning in.